0: Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy, and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360am as well as weekly on X-ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on Soundcloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer." But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's future forecast. So I thought to kickstart the program, we should talk a little bit about virtual reality. But maybe even more specifically, we should talk about what Microsoft's doing, which is augmented reality. Now, the big difference between augmented reality and virtual reality is they they kind of share some things that are similar. And I'll admit, they kind of sound similar. But augmented reality basically takes what we see in the real world uh, and puts in a 3D object so that we can interact with it. Virtual reality is a virtual reality. It's not really taking what's around us. It's just taking how big the room is and then making a whole environment in it. So augmented reality is kind of that mesh. It's a hybrid between reality and and total virtual reality and Microsoft has been doing this thing called HoloLens. Now if you can take your mind back a couple of years you probably remember these HoloLens, they're quite a bulky kit but Microsoft's been working on it for all these years, all these new innovations have been putting into this new HoloLens 2. Now the HoloLens 2, it's really incredible actually. I just watched a presentation that they uh, Microsoft just uploaded to their YouTube channel and they show actually having a full life-size person being able to do a whole presentation halfway across the world and translate it into the local language for that area there's a lot that's been done with this so just to go over how it works so hololens 2 it's basically like a very very big set of glasses and it tracks how people's hands uh, motions and how they move and also their eye gaze so it tracks how your where your pupils are going where you're actually looking Uh, And, well, for example, that means they can perceive a hologram floating in front of the person who's using the HoloLens. And, you know, you can resize it, you can pinch and zoom and all of that. So, it's really very interactive. Now, to build on that, uh, the hand tracking system, uh, the team built this rig... And it comes with this dome cameras pointing inwards so that they can record a diverse range of people's hands. Because remember, we've got to train this AI, this uh, augmented reality AI, to kind of interpret different people's hands, right? And how we move our hands so that it's accurate. There isn't a latency. Now, what they ended up doing was they created this whole offline cloud Uh, processing to build a 3D model capable of representing all human hand shapes and motions. So from this 3D model the team was able to use a computer graphics to render and create a realistic synthetic image of hands along with synthetic labels to make sure the models are robust across a variety of hand shapes, poses and movements. The hand and eye tracking capabilities, along with other intelligent features such as simultaneous localization and mapping that's necessary to make holograms appear pinned to the world. So when you move your hand and you've got this little object in your hand, you move your hand, it it moves with it. It doesn't just whack. It goes with it at the same speed. And that's what makes the holograms look more realistic. Now there are some privacy concerns about, you know, how is the AI doing this calculation? How's it doing it is it doing locally on the device or is it doing it in this cloud? Because you're scanning your iris, right? This is really getting up in your face. And, you know, we already have the cloud, uh, which is really just a big data center. You know, I always hear people say, oh, the cloud, what's the cloud? The cloud's just a big data server and it connects to your computer and your phone so you can get back information, retrieve it back and forth. So in theory, uh, you could literally just have these HoloLensies with an interactive system and not have a computer. Your whole computer is the cloud or this whole separate server. But let's look at this from a practical application. Imagine you're in Japan or Sweden and you don't speak either language. Like, I don't know about you, but I do not speak Japanese or Swedish. Now, let's say that all you do is you put on your HoloLens glasses and whoever you're interacting with would receive a translated version of your voice in their language. So now, this is funny. There was a there was a little experiment. Um, if anybody knows who Jordan Peterson is, uh, he's he's quite famous for his books. Uh, but somebody actually took his voice and created an AI, an augmented deep fake of his voice. And there was a whole website to you know make him say things that he didn't say. So there's definitely negatives to using this kind of a thing, but it is possible. This is a real thing. So having you speak in a different language. In your own voice is totally doable but they actually went one step further they did a whole scan a 3d scan of the person who was doing the presentation and combined it with the japanese or the swedish speech so what you would have is this person standing there and everybody's watching them through the hololens talking to you in your language who's not there it's just really interesting so the future of personal computing and gadgets they're changing at a real rapid pace And, you know, this is going into the mid-2020s, it's going to be pretty rare for people to go out and buy a full computer with all the hardware built in. You know how Apple has those solid-state drives and everybody used to have the mechanical drives and they were slow, and then you upgraded and you were like, wow, this is really quick. Well, what you're going to see is instead of having computers with, you know, uh, everything's on the cloud, it'll start with, okay, the hard drive is not included with the computer. You've got this lifetime access to the cloud, and unlimited storage, right? And that's that's what this is going to start as, and this is how this Hololens is going to start to get introduced. It's going to be well, you know, you're using your computer and you're accessing this cloud computer. Why not just put these goggles on, right? It's way more interactive, and you can do all these cool things like talk to people across the world in their own language. It really opens a whole new world to it. And although we're just talking about Hololens, this is going to affect all electronics all computers now although it has a price tag of three and a half thousand dollars microsoft's clearly marketing this to corporate customers uh, noting that the value comes in the application like helping airline mechanics showing them how particular repairs are supposed to be done or having a manual always available without using their hands because you know in some cases you get some tools you can't get to the manual and it's pretty good to have it maybe in the corner of your vision So HoloLens is meant to be for use in custom applications using a variety of mixed reality tools and services from Microsoft. And HoloLens 2 looks like it's a real game changer. Uh, It's bringing this mixed reality to a broader set of enterprises. And to be honest, if I'm looking at, and probably you're thinking as well, you know, I want that, they're kind of getting to the nail on the tee, and I think you're going to start seeing a lot of people buying these, just like we saw a lot of people getting the virtual reality. But mixed reality is a totally different game, and I think it's really going to change the way people look at computers. And over time, you know, they get smaller and smaller. The general concept is this is supposed to be glass you're going to maybe get to the point where you put these eye contact lenses. You just put them on, you access the cloud, and there you go. You've got your whole computer on you. You don't need to do anything. But you know, talking about that, that kind of relates to the next thing we're going to talk about, which is wearable technology. Now, we've got this, uh, there was even some examples coming from Google and Levi, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, with uses for wearable technology on clothes, but you've got to think about how are you going to power that. Now, one option is, you know, you've got a battery, you plug it in and you charge it up in the wall, but that's really annoying. Imagine that, you know, you get your jacket, you just want to put it on and go. You don't want to worry about, okay, plugging it in and then charging it. Now, here's a way to get around it. Solar panels. Now, as we know, solar panels, they're pretty rigid and they're made of monocrystalline and polycrystalline silicone, and they're the most efficient, but they're very easy to break. Uh, The flexible options, which are made from thin films or Morpheus silicone, they're able to withstand rougher conditions, but they're way, way less efficient. Now, there's a company that I just found called SunUp, and they're looking to change that, and they provide this backpack-hugging solar flexible panel for hikers. But it basically combines a small number of polycrystalline solar panels with flexible joints so that allows them to fit snugly over a backpack and almost looks a little bit like an origami style. And another cool thing about it is it can be draped over any kind of a surface. It could be over a tent, it could be over a canoe, anything you want. Now the product has some modularity already uh, since it's easy to replace if you know if a part breaks a little panel you know just instead of replacing the whole thing you just change that particular tile and currently it can charge a 4000 milliamp battery in about 12 hours now for solar and how small this is that's really good. Uh, This type of thing, you're going to see it's going to be more common, Uh, you're going to see it in the clothing industry, especially with wearable technology needing a reliable source of power. A great example, like I said, was what Google did with Levi's. Now, what did they do? Well, they created a new wearable tech jacket and it used functional fabrics and conductive yarns, allowing the wearer to interact with their clothing and by extension, their phone. The dongle in your jacket's cuff connected with conductive yarns in your jacket and the user could just swipe over the cuff, tap it, hold it, and they'd be able to issue their commands to their phone or whatever else it was that we were trying to connect to. And the commands, I mean, they range from saving your location, bringing up a Google Assistant uh, or changing, you know, your headphones volume, skipping songs, uh, controlling your camera for a selfie or, you know, something simple like counting things, you know, during the day, maybe you see a pigeon, you want to count how many pigeons you see on that day. Well, you know, you just tap your jacket and, you know, this got me thinking, how's this going to affect the fashion industry? I always keep thinking of uh, Back to the Future Part 2. You know, when you watch Back to the Future and they're in 2015, which is the past for us now, but you see what they're wearing and it's all this tech clothing, you know, your jacket, Marty McFly he goes in water, he presses his jacket, cools him down, uh, dries the jacket. You're gonna. I think you're going to start actually seeing that very, very soon, especially with technology like this. This is going to take it to another level Connecting all of your different devices up to one. So another way to look at this is a combination of all your devices in one interface. Because think about it, it's like if you have uh you're trying to pour something and you want to pour maybe a second uh spice or something into whatever you're trying to make. Well, you need a funnel to do that. And I think that this wearable jacket is kind of the funnel, it's how you can control all of the devices in one go without the hassle of you know switching between each individual one but when it comes to fashion i think this is going to be very cool to see especially with solar panels and you know you're going to see leds and possibly like logos and stuff moving around in the shirt it's very cool now we're going to talk about feeling the invisible now this sounds totally sci-fi but this is totally real uh, so current generation vr controllers they're fairly limited the gun fires it kind of kicks back gives you a little jolt in the controller well over in russia uh the institute of science and technology are proposing a big step forward with something called touch vr and it's a wearable accessory that applies direct force to the palm and vibrotactile feedback to fingers i know sounds very fancy now that actually enables the user to feel weight textures softness slippage all of that so each touch VR wearable uh, looks like uh, kind of like something from Iron Man. It's a big Iron Man glove. So there's no need to hold a controller. Your hands are tracked as the controller, and they also get the reaction of whatever you're trying to do. So the researchers are using several Unity-based VR apps to demonstrate touch VR's capabilities, including Virtual Spider, uh, which is kind of this little thing that crawls along your hand. I don't know if I'd like to do this, but you know, it crawls along your hand, and you can feel it walking and bouncing a soccer ball, uh, a pulsing dragon's egg, and all sorts of other demos. So other earlier demos allowed uh, users to operate a virtual robot uh, with help from the tactile feedback or feel immersed in a Matrix-esque 3d collection of streamlines of code i mean it's really cool and simulating the sensation of touch without forcing users to grasp you know a sword hit like controller has been a goal of vr developers for years and a variety of different approaches have been proposed like ultra haptics sending vibration sensations through the air to your fingers uh, while haptic armbands and, you know, all sorts of other stuff kind of vibrate around you. But Touch VR solution is way, way smaller and way simpler. So going forward, uh, the researchers have additional ideas of how to expand Touch VR's functionality. So it's quite unclear, you know, is this going to be an accessory that's available to consumers or is it going to be available to uh, the main industry? But either way... If you're going to SeaCraft in Asia, which is actually going to be held in Brisbane, Australia, from November 17th to 20th, you're actually going to be able to go and check it out. And if you do, you're going to be experiencing something that I think is going to become mainstream very, very quickly as well. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember, you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. take a moment to talk about transportation, because there's some really cool stuff going on with something called the Hyperloop. Now you might have heard of Hyperloop, they were going to do one along the west coast, Uh, I believe it was from San Francisco to Los Angeles or something like that, and then they stopped doing that. Well actually, believe it or not, uh, there is some developments going on with Hyperloop, but it's elsewhere in the country. So the Great Lakes Hyperloop uh, sounds like something ripped right out of the pages of science fiction but uh, passengers will be able to board a pressurized train car-esque capsule hovering in a vacuum-sealed magnetic tube system and zoom off to their destination at lightning speed. So Clevelanders... Could commute to work or play in Chicago in just 28 minutes. That's like really quick. And it may sound hopelessly futuristic, but you know, the Hyperloop is no pipe dream. And that was Grace Galushi, who's the executive director of Northeast Ohio Area Wide Coordinating Agency. Last year, it formed a public private partnership with developer Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, which recently unveiled its state of the art Hyperloop Research Development Center in France. This resulting in a 1.2 million dollar feasibility report for America's first multi-state hyperloop system. And that should wrap up by the year's end, and then it'll be revealed, you know, about the costs, the safety, and the economic impacts. In the meantime, though, the U.S. House of Representatives earmarked 5 million dollars to create a hyperloop regulatory framework, a decision that keeps the Great Lakes project moving forward. Glushy says that Hyperloop opens a new world of possibilities. Our footprint as a region to work, live and play really expands for employers and it also allows them a larger employee base for recruitment. But before you get excited, you know, a fully commercialized Great Lakes Hyperloop might take a little bit more than, you know, a decade plus. Also, depending on the feasibility of the report, Uh, The plan could just die in the vines of, you know, physical reality, like similar projects before in Virginia and Colorado. But Galushi points out that the NOACAs collaboration with Hyperloop Transportation Technology is reason enough to believe in this one. She says we're the only one with an official public-private partnership with the developer of this magnitude. And if everything works out, Cleveland could become the vital link for the interstate of the future. And When you look at Chicago all the way to New York City, Cleveland is pretty much dead centre And as Glucci said, that's why the Great Lakes Hyperloop will be so successful. But what do you think? Would you like to go on a pressurized Hyperloop? And I don't know about you, but I mean, if you could get there in 28 minutes, you know, that'd be pretty good. But you know, some people just like to drive. And I'll tell you, I totally understand that. And this next piece of information is for you. There is a new electric Ford Mustang. Now, you might have heard, you know, Ford was unveiling this, uh, Mach... You know, it's the electric uh, Mustang inspired SUV that customers can actually go and buy. Uh, And that should even be, that should be a major competitor for the Tesla Model Y and the Jaguar I-Pace. But, you know, we're not here to talk about the SUV Mustang. We're, We're here to talk about a Mustang Mustang. And more specifically, an electric Mustang with a manual gearbox. Now that sounds really weird, but... Ford unveiled a fully electric Mustang with over 900 horsepower at the SEMA car show in Las Vegas. And although it's just a proof of concept, it's quite clear Ford's going to be doing something similar to GM when it comes to this plug-and-play EV conversion. Created together with the automotive parts supplier Webasto, the Mustang Lithium has a six-speed manual transmission. Now, Josh Lapo Uh, who's the director of marketing for Wabasco Customized Solutions, said that the manual transmission was included because it puts the control of the vehicle back into the driver's hands. So the driver can simply, you know, he could leave it in third gear and you could drive all the time like that. But if you really wanted to, you could shift gears and really get quite skilled with it. So the Mustang Lithium is powered by an 800 volt power system, and that's more than double the power of most electric cars on the road today according to Ford. And the driver can select between four driving modes, and wait for it, this includes Sport, Track, and most importantly Beast. Yes, they have a Beast mode. And the fourth mode is obviously Valet, for you know when you hand it off to someone else to go and park. I don't think you'd want to leave it in beast mode, you might not get your car back. But this whole thing was all created as well as a way to test the heat management systems for an electric car, according to Ford. So, as you know, electric car batteries and motors, they tend to heat up a lot, especially when you're under hard racing. Uh, They really need to, you need to cool them down. It's a bit like a gas car, you know, you don't want to have your car overheat. So besides the upcoming SUV, Ford has also been developing a F-150 electric and they towed I think a whole million pound train or something like that. You should go and check it out on YouTube, it's definitely worth a watch. And Ford's also going to do some other electric models. There's rumour that possibly the Bronco, the new Bronco, might have an electric variant, but we'll have to wait and see for that. It's all just rumours. But so far we know the Mustang and the F-150 are going down the electric path. But you know, is it going to catch on? Because I know a lot of people that really love V8s and it's not really because sometimes you want the power. It's, you know, you get the whole feel for the car. You get the the sounds, you know, you get the whole vibration. There's a whole, it's like a drama to it, okay? So I can see the appeal with the F-150 and, you know, an SUV Mustang. But an electric Mustang Fastback, that's going to be a really interesting one. But I think if Ford does something like what GM's doing, which is creating this electric crate motor, you know, you plug in and play, I think that'd be really successful, especially for cars that, you know, you've blown the motor and it you have to replace the motor. Then I think that would make sense and maybe you couldn't get a replacement for it. But we'll have to wait and see with that. Uh, anyway, I think we should talk about something a little bit out there, airships. And they're making a return. Now, Zeppelins, uh, you know, it's weird, you you wouldn't think that it would be making a comeback, but in about four to five years, something called the Airlander will be making its first flight to the North Pole since 1928. So since 1928, we've never had anything, you know, go over there. And it's going to have tourists on board. And it won't be alone in the sky either. Uh, Many companies are looking into this, uh, you know, with these massive airships to carry cargo. So the Airlander looks very different from the traditional airships. Uh, Probably picturing, you know, Hindenburg or, you know, those Michelin tyre airships. This is very different. This is like three airships put together. It's very, very wide. It's a hybrid design and it allows the Airlander to fly faster and carry more cargo than rival models. Uh, it doesn't even need a large ground crew for landing. Their ship was initially developed by the US military. but when the program got cancelled in 2013, it was brought back to the UK, rebuilt for civilian use and named Airlander 10. But finally it did get retired in just in January 2019 after seven test flights. The main problem for investors and potential customers is that it's still relatively high risk, and it's quite an expensive design. You know, the Airlander is the only full-size hybrid airship that's ever flown, compared to hundreds of regular airships. Hybrid airships produce a fraction of the pollution for of a conventional aircraft. But the company behind this, which is called Hybrid Air Vehicles, just got awarded $1.3 million by the UK government and industry to reduce it to zero pollution by developing an electric propulsion system for the massive aircraft. Despite its vast size, the Airlander 10 is relatively small. Uh, customers who want to, you know, buy this for this big heavy lifting of cargo and all that kind of stuff, they bear weight for this Airlander 50, which is gonna be gigantic. But if we go back to the US, Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works in Palmdale, California, which was once famous for the U-2 and the SR-71 Blackbird reconnaissance planes, they may soon gain notoriety for something else, airships. So the American Aerospace Giant's uh, hybrid airship program is also based there, and that's behind a lot of security events. And most importantly, airships can serve a numerous amount of missions. You know, you can go from humanitarian relief to resource extraction, to heavy cargo operations. It's also possible that once airships break into the market, other uses might be discovered. So in this case, the sky is not the limit. So HAV, which is the Hybrid Air Vehicles, announced that two customers have signed letters of intent to buy air landers. With production hopefully about to start, The company will be renewing ties with the US military and partnering with the American Aerospace Company to propose a military airlander to the Pentagon. So this is really cool you know we're transitioning into the space era we've got the Starship, SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic and we've got these airships are they gonna catch on you know I I don't think it's gonna be more for people transport you know if you want to go from A to B Starship's gonna be the answer you get anywhere in the world in like an hour But possibly when it comes to something like the cruise boat industry, apart from cargo and that, this could be something that could really catch on. These airships, they'd be much more appealing to that kind of a target audience. You know, it's a real potential, and you could even have these air hotels, so definitely watch this space. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and have a listen, it's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. When we think of energy, we kind of think nuclear, and then sometimes we get scared we think about Chernobyl, and maybe we might think about wind power and all of that stuff. But have you ever thought of cold fusion? Well, let me tell you a little bit about cold fusion. Three decades ago, we threw cold fusion in the sci-fi trash bin, Uh, but the idea was so outrageous that a multi-billion dollar defense company is now returning with cold fusion reactor. If the world is ever going to solve an ongoing energy crisis and climate change crisis, scientists and researchers need to start thinking outside the box again. Like, way outside the box. So 32 years ago, a pair of chemists caused quite the stir when they claimed to have achieved cold fusion with a simple tabletop apparatus at room temperature. But as fate would have it, other experimenters failed to replicate their work and the scientific community tossed the cold fusion into the technology trash bin with all the other harebrained notions of overreacting clean energy buffs fortunately the alternative energy gold rush remains alive and well and the world's biggest pure play defense contractor Lockheed Martin is proving it with its ambitious compact fusion reactor program So cold fusion, if possible, would solve a big part of the puzzle because it wouldn't require the insane amount of energy that's currently needed to get fusion reaction going. You know, it's a concept, there's nothing new about it. It's an idea that was hatched way back in 1920. We're now getting into 2020. This is like a really old idea. The whole idea of cold fusion is that it's possible to dissolve hydrogen and its isotopes in certain solids in high enough concentrations that the hydrogen nuclei are closer than they would ever be in solid hydrogen and cause them to fuse. Further, negative electrical charges of electrons in solid partly cancel the repulsion forces between nuclei, thus facilitating the fusion process. When Lockheed Martin announced back in 2014 that it plan to build this compact fusion reactor, the CFR, in just 10 years, uh, initially the plan, you know, it was built to build a bigger and more improved uh, test reactor at one year at a time, culminating in a project called TX, which would have been capable of running for kinda around 10 seconds to show a steady state after the injectors are turned off. And you know, Lockheed hopes uh, to commence work on the next iteration, which is called T5, before the end of the current year. The company will then build three more reactors, culminating in T8 which it hopes to demonstrate stable fusion and full confinement. We can only hope that Lockheed is able to achieve this, its ambitious plan to build all three reactors remaining in the next five years, and chances are we'll hit cold fusion eventually, and when we do, it'll change everything. Now going into a little bit for uh, something that did change everything, but not in a good way, Fukushima. When there was a whole nuclear disaster there, it totally destroyed the environment and destroyed even the whole community around uh, the Fukushima plant. Now, this was back in Japan and Fukushima is actually being rebuilt as 21 different wind and solar power plants. So investors have $2.75 billion uh, to plan and build a wind and solar plant in Fukushima. The plan will build 11 solar plants and 10 wind power plants in the region. It'll be built on farmlands that was rendered, you know, totally unusable after the disastrous 2011 nuclear meltdown. And, you know, it'll get a second chance at productivity. The electricity generated would then be sent off to Tokyo. So the planners expect that this 21 total uh, plants will generate 600 megawatts of electricity or about, you know, two-thirds of what the nuclear power plant would have generated. The plant will then be connected by about 80 kilometers of grid that will cost around $266 to construct. In 2018, Japan created 83% of its energy from fossil fuel and nuclear generators. The country is targeting a gradual shift towards renewable energy sources, hoping to generate between 22% and 24% of its energy via renewable sources, like wind solar all by 2030 and after the tragic nuclear reactor meltdown back in 2011 the fukushima prefecture has been much more aggressive about converting you know over into this renewable energy in march alone the prefecture announced that they had an aim to be powered entirely by renewable energy by 2040 so you can see they're really going down the direction of making sure we fix the problem that was caused by fukushima but this goes into a little bit of a different kind of a turn you know, we're looking at repurposing old sites that have been, you know, damaged or they're no longer able to be used. And that kind of reminds me of Detroit. Now, Detroit in America, you know, obviously there was the financial issues that happened there, but they're changing some of these plots and they're making them into gardens. But if you look at cities, imagine if you put solar on every roof of all the buildings on the city that they're not currently being used for anything else. You could really solve a lot of energy problems just by having solar in places that you're not really using anyway. And to be honest, solar looks pretty nice, especially solar panels. You get some nice solar panels on your roof, they look pretty good. Now here's an interesting story. Have you ever thought of a gas leaf? Well, you know, there's a new way to produce Syngas, which has been created and it all comes from this leaf. So how does it work? Well, the artificial leaf is powered by sunlight. And it can still work on, you know, a cloudy day or an overcast day. And unlike current industrial processes for producing syngas, the leaf does not release any additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Syngas is made with a mixture of hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and is used in a range of products. A lot of products you wouldn't think you use, but you do. So like fuels, pharmaceuticals, plastics, fertilizers even. So although you may have not heard about syngas, you do use it. Being able to produce it sustainably would be a critical step especially in closing global carbon cycles and establishing a sustainable chemical and fuel industry so the device professor erwin resner of cambridge department of chemistry said it is inspired by photosynthesis which is the natural process of plants that use energy from the sunlight to turn carbon dioxide into food On the artificial leaf, two light absorbers, similar to the molecules in a plant that harvest sunlight, are combined with a catalyst made from naturally abundant elements in cobalt. When the device is immersed in water, one light absorber uses the catalyst to produce oxygen. The other carries out the chemical reaction that reduces carbon dioxide and water into carbon monoxide and hydrogen forming syngas as a mixture. As an added bonus, the researchers also discovered that their light absorbers even work under the low levels of sunlight. So, you know, on an overcast day, a rainy day. And that means you're not limited to using the technology in just warm countries. You could use it anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's summer or winter. You could use it absolutely anywhere. From dawn till dusk, it doesn't matter. Other artificial leaf devices, you know, they've been developed, but they usually only produce hydrogen. Now, hydrogen's not a bad thing, especially if we're talking about going to space. Hydrogen is great, that's fuel. But uh, Cambridge and the researchers there say that the reason that theirs is able to produce syngas sustainably is thanks to the combination of materials and catalysts that they had used. These include the -the state-of-the-art perovskite, light absorbers, which produce high voltage and electrical current to power the chemical reaction, by which carbon dioxide is reduced and carbon monoxide, in comparison to light absorbers made from silicon or dye-sensitized materials. The researchers also used cobalt as their molecular catalyst instead of platinum or silver. Cobalt is not only a lower cost option, it's also better at producing carbon monoxide than other catalysts. So the team's now looking at ways their technology could be used to produce sustainable liquid fuel. Maybe even an alternative to gas. Now, Syngas is already being used in the building blocks of production to create liquid fuels. So what they're trying to do is make Syngas and, you know, make it into petroleum or gasoline. And although great advances are being made in generating electricity from renewable sources such as wind power and photovoltaics... Reisner says that the development of synthetic petrol, or gasoline, is vital, as electricity can only satisfy about 25% of our global energy needs. He said there is a major demand for liquid fuels to power heavy transport, shipping, and aviation sustainably. He went on to say it's challenging to produce it in one step from sunlight using carbon dioxide reduction reaction, but we are confident that we are going in the right direction, and that we have the right catalysts. So we believe that we'll be able to produce a device that can demonstrate this process in the very near future. And you know, if they really do pull that off and they're able to create gasoline or petroleum, that would definitely change things up, especially with such a tiny carbon footprint. Now, we can't talk about power and all of this generation if we don't know how to store it. Now, how do we store power? Well, we sometimes use grid batteries. And what are grid batteries? Well, they're giant batteries. More specifically, they're called flow batteries, but they haven't really been rolled out totally. So, you know, they store electricity in tanks of liquid electrolyte and they could be the answer, but so far, utilities, they haven't yet found a cost-effective battery that can reliably power thousands of homes throughout a life cycle of about 10 to 20 years. Now a battery membrane technology was developed by researchers at the US Department of Energy Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, it's a very long name, uh, and they might have actually found a solution. So most grid batteries chemistries have a high alkaline or basic electrodes, Uh, but currently the state of the art membranes are designed for acidic chemistries such as fluorinated membranes found in fuel cells but not alkaline flow batteries. Now you might think, oh, well, that's fine, we've, if we've already got it, uh-huh, but it's not that easy. Fluorinated polymer membranes are very expensive, so according to Helms, uh, they can make up about 15-20% to 20% of the battery's cost. Which, you know, that can run up in the range of $300 per kilowatt hour. One way to drive down the cost of flow batteries is to eliminate the fluorinated polymer membranes altogether and come up with a new, high-performing, yet cheaper alternative. Such as something called Aqua PIMS. Now, through these early experiments, uh, researchers learned that membranes modified with an exotic chemical called amyoxidine allowed ions to travel quickly between anoid and cathode. While evaluating aqua PIM membrane performance and compatibility with different grid battery chemistries, the researchers developed a model that tied up the Performance of the battery to the performance of various membranes. This model could predict a lifetime efficiency of a flow battery without having to build the entire device. So they also showed that similar models could be applied to other battery chemistries and membranes. The researchers next plan is to apply Aqua PIM membranes across a broader scope of aqueous flow battery chemistries from metals and inorganic to organic and polymers. They also anticipate that these membranes are compatible with aqueous alkaline zinc batteries, including batteries that use either oxygen or manganese oxide or metal organic frameworks as cathode. So although that sounded like a lot of chemistry jargon, uh, basically all of this stuff that's getting developed for these grid batteries they're actually going to improve possibly your own batteries in your phone or you know in your car and it might even pull down electricity costs so definitely keep your eye on this space enjoying the show well just remember you can listen to them on soundcloud anytime you want just search for future forecasts with daniel trainer and have a listen it's that easy This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So we've talked a lot about technology and you know how's it going to affect our lives and I, I think we should talk a little bit about what's happening in the future. And one of the biggest things, and it just happened actually, is Starlink. I like to talk about Starlink uh, because it's something that is so groundbreaking and there was just a recent update about it. So SpaceX has launched 60 satellites into orbit. Now, if you take your mind back a few weeks, you'll remember Elon Musk over Twitter. He posted something like sending this tweet through space via Starlink satellite. Well, you know, after that got sent, it looks like progress on the network went into hyperdrive. Uh, The plans changed from launching, you know, 10,000 satellites and they ended up saying, "Okay, now we're going to launch another 30,000. And keeping this in mind, you know, President Gwen Shotwell said back in October that they aim to launch about 60 every other week. She also went on to say that we need to get about 360 to 400 to have constant connectivity where the satellites can end up through the ground talking to each other. Once we get about 1200 satellites, we'll have coverage over the whole globe. Now, the Starlink service has the aim to provide people the service as early as mid 2020, it might even happen earlier than that, to very affordable, very quick internet. And that's really going to shake up the telecom industry. And what's cool about these satellites is that they aren't designed to stay up there permanently. Uh, you would think oh yeah they're around earth they're going to stay up there but you know eventually they're going to need replacing and why is that a good thing why am i so excited about it let me tell you as elon musk said earlier this year you know once you replace those satellites you're starting to improve the network and you're going to have to improve the network anyway over time so as if our globe wasn't connected enough the starlink network will make a big impact on how we look at locations i mean imagine all the places people could work You know, a lot of people, they rely on fast internet connections for their remote work that they do for their job, and you could possibly live anywhere in the world if your job's done remotely. A little bit about the launch though, I mean, because it is quite important, it was quite interesting. The 60 satellites, which were packed in like pizza boxes, uh, got sent up in a Falcon 9 rocket. But this wasn't just any Falcon 9 rocket. This Falcon 9 rocket has been to space and back four times and then it landed on a barge out in the sea it's just so amazing that this all worked perfectly and as Gwen said at SpaceX this is going to be happening every other week now and now we're talking about rockets I think we're gonna have to start talking about holograms and it is all real this is what's cool this isn't science fiction this is actually a reality now, holograms, you know, as we move forward into the future, it's always important that we preserve as much of the past as possible. But, you know, the information, that's thats just one piece. What we really need to do is preserve the source of the information. And that usually comes from a human. That comes from a person. So what do we do? Well, we make holograms. So as much as this hologram thing sounds like something in films, it's actually been around for quite a while. Uh, however, they're starting to get more and more advanced. Uh, it's becoming a medium that's getting used more often, especially when it comes to preserving historical figures and stories. Since 2017, the interactive Holocaust holograms have traveled around museums all over North America. So most places they kind of they show them as high definition two dimensional videos on a flat screen, or some other places they use this Pepper Ghost technique. You should go and, go and watch a YouTube on it. It's very cool how they do this. Um, however, what makes this Holocaust hologram project different is that they've future-proofed it. Uh, so once this technology is widely available, let's just switch over to it. And this is starting to become a more and more common thing. Now, what sort of future hologram technology are we talking about, though? Well, you know, currently we've got some true 3D hologram technology being developed, but it's, it's quite interesting. It's using lasers. But how does that work? Well, each laser, once it crosses with another, creates a beam. It kind of creates a a pixel or a dot, if you want. And once you have a bunch of these dots and all of these lasers kind of all firing off, you can kind of create a shape. And this is already technology that exists. And again, like I said, go on YouTube. Now, what you want to search for is something called HoloVect. And you'll see the video of how it kind of creates something. And this is true holograms. This is actually seeing it with your own eyes. So you're probably thinking, wow, this is really cool. But wait, there's more. Now going along the same idea, what if instead of using lasers, we use drones? And for those dot pixels, uh, we had them in a 3D space. Now, Intel, believe it or not, has already thought of that. Now, they created something, it was called the Drone Light Show, and this was back in 2016, which is, like, crazy that this actually happened. And each drone had an LED, and it could change color, and basically became a floating pixel. Now, although that's very different to holograms, technically, if the LED was changed and it had maybe a projectable sheet or a little bit of form or something you could project onto You could have these drones go in a certain formation and project up onto this 3d canvas but you're probably thinking you know is this going to catch on and i'll tell you what i actually have a very very strong feeling that this actually would catch on because unlike you've seen the gimmicks you know some of this vr with your phone you put up to yours unlike that this isn't 2d video Uh, this isn't something that you can kind of have in your house this is something that requires a lot of space and a lot of capital investment and usually a lot of people to control it So, going forward into the 2020s, this might actually be the next generation's version of a drive-in cinema. And talking about films, that actually puts us into our next topic, which is Project Silica. And you might think, what is Project Silica? Well, Microsoft and Warner Brothers collaborated and successfully stored and retrieved the entire 1978 iconic Superman movie from a single piece of glass roughly the size of a drinking coaster. It was the first proof of concept uh, test for Project Silica, which is a Microsoft research project that uses recent discoveries in ultra-fast laser optics and artificial intelligence to store data in quartz glass. Really sounds like sci-fi. So the laser encodes data into the glass by creating layers of three-dimensional nanoscale gratings and deformations at various depths and angles. So the machine learning algorithms read back the data and decode the images. And that's basically it. It's very simple when you really think about it. And this represents an investment uh, by Microsoft Azure to develop storage technologies built specifically for cloud computing patterns uh, rather than relying on storage media designed to work on computers or other scenarios. Now, keep in mind what I've said before about Starlink and think about cloud computing, right? Uh, Sometimes we've got cloud computing where you are using a computer somewhere else that's in a big data server and you're using it maybe on your, your MacBook Air and you're able to do some major 3D work. Well, now think about this for a moment. We're going to get to the point where you no longer have to buy and own your own hardware. It'll all just be a service provided for a simple monthly charge. And this kind of a mass storage is going to make it much easier, much cheaper for companies like Microsoft to offer a cheap cloud service. But most importantly, is going to be super reliable. But going back to the post, uh, Warner Brothers, which approached Microsoft after learning about this whole research thing, was really interested and they've been on the hunt for this new technology to safeguard their vast asset library so including historic treasures like the casablanca the 1940s radio shows animated shorts digital shorts theatrical films television sitcoms dailies from film sets uh, for years they've been searching for this storage technology but that could last hundreds of years and with sent floods solar flares and all of that And that didn't need a certain environment or any kind of a special temperature control. Long term storage, currently at the moment, uh, the costs are driven up by the need to repeatedly transfer data onto newer media before the information is lost. And hard drives, you know, they can wear out after three to five years. Magnetic tapes may only last about five to seven years. And like CDs, discs, you know, cassette tapes, file formats become obsolete. And it gets to a point where you can't even read it anymore. So, Having your own digital archives, for instance, like Warner Brothers, they're proactively migrating all this content every three to five years to stay ahead of degradation issues. So glass storage seems like the perfect potential solution. And it becomes a lower cost option because it only needs to write the data onto this glass once. And it uses femtosecond lasers, and those are the ones that emit ultra-short optical pulses that are commonly used in LASIK surgery. And that permanently changes the structure of the glass so that the data can be preserved for centuries. And just a point note on that femtosecond lasers, those are the same lasers that are supposed to be used for interplanetary internet networks. So all this technology exists and it's starting to actually be applied. Now, if Project Silica's storage solution proves to be a cost-effective and scalable, you know, as they say it's going to be, I think you're going to see a lot of these other studios and all these other industries starting to get on this concept. So we'll have to see, is this going to work for a lot of people? Maybe we are going to actually be able to buy this. Uh, I know Microsoft said we're not going to be selling this, but I could imagine a lot of people wanting to buy this. And it'd be really cool. Imagine that you have a little piece of glass on your desk and it's maybe got all your family's albums. It's just so super futuristic. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This shows broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore. It's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond.